Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 383 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the first part of a two-part interview, Andy Jackson speaks with John Greening about writing groups, imposter syndrome, getting published perhaps too early, and being inspired by people rather than things. Andy Jackson is a poet, blogger, editor and anthologist. Originally from Salford, he has lived in Scotland for the past three decades and was medical librarian at the University of Dundee. He's also worked for the NHS and lectured on digital and research skills. His first collection, The Assassination Museum, appeared from the Red Squirrel Press in 2010 and was reviewed enthusiastically by Ian Macmillan. It was followed by more slim volumes, notably A Beginner's Guide to Cheating, and in 2020, The Saints Are Coming, which John Glenday called consistently moving and praised for its formal precision. As an editor... Andy Jackson has particularly specialised in popular-themed anthologies in which contrasting or complementary poems are set side by side. Split Screen and its sequel, Double Bill, drew on poems inspired by film and TV, and the latter title was selected by Clive James as a Book of the Year. In 2014 came A Gathering of Poems about cycling, Tour de Verne. Then in 2019, with George Surtees, he answered the call of the Clarihue, the same year that he and Brian Johnston brought out Scotia Extremis, a collection of paired poems from the extreme of Scotland's psyche. There's also been an important historical anthology of Dundee poems, Whaleback City, co-edited with W.N. Herbert, his collaborator on the political poetry blog New Boots and Pantisocracies. Andy, it's great to be here, North East Scotland again, and to talk with you about your your poetry and all the many other things you, you, you've done. I was wondering whether you come from a literary family at all. Is there, is there poetry in the family? No, not really. I suppose I come from that archetypal blue-collar family where nobody really was educated, nobody went to university. I was the first uh, Jackson at university, but my dad was one of those self-taught men who could rattle off a a crossword, uh, admittedly in the Daily Mirror, but he he knew what he was doing with words. Handed me books to read when I was a child and told me not to read other books because they were for dummies, as he would call them. So whilst there's not poetry or literature in my family, there there are words in my family, I guess. what were the earliest poems you read? Would you say, or what was the the earliest poems that made an impression? Are there, are there any particular titles or authors that you look look back at and say, ah, oh, that, that poetry is something I could, I could make something of. I was always attracted to the the rhyme, which are most most children seem to to start mm. their poetry lives with rhyme. So it was Edward Lear, Hilaire Belloc, cautionary tales, yeah. that sort of thing. I liked the. The neatness of, of rhyming and the more outrageous the better, which has kind of influenced some things in my later career. But that was where I began, I guess, with the the nice rhyming stuff that was witty but uh, but accessible. Yes, yes, I certainly noticed that reading your books. So was the beginning of your own writing of poetry connected with moving to Scotland? 
It was a little bit. I mean, I'd written at school and I'd written periodically at college and it was exactly as you might expect it would be. It was very sixth form and not a lot of merit in it. Even if uh, I could pick it up now, I would find very little I could I could really build on. And then a very long fallow period of, of no poetry at all, no reading of poetry, no writing of poetry, certainly until probably in my 30s when I was at Dundee University and uh, I started to become attracted to the idea of the written word again. I'd done some editing work on a sort of spurious in-house magazine for the department I worked for, which occasionally involved something uh, anonymous but poetically reasonably valid, and then discovered that Colette Bryce had been appointed as the writer-in-residence at Dundee University, ostensibly to support students, but she set up a a staff writing club. And I I went along not really knowing what to expect and found out that I was by far the weakest writer in, in the group. And after a few a few years of her uh, stewardship, she she kind of gave me an ultimatum and said, "You really do have to decide whether you want to do this seriously. In which case, you know, this sort of thing that you're pr- bringing every week is not really what what the poetry world is looking for." So, mm. uh, so it was really Colette that fired the spark mm. of uh, of my adult poetry life. I would say, yes, yes, she's a very fine poet. I think there's a, there's a kind of tradition of, of writers and residents at Dundee University. And Douglas Dunn was there when I was living in the area. And so, do you do you still attend a writing group? I read somewhere or heard you say somewhere that you you still still active with a, a creative writing group. Is that right? Yes, two in fact. There is a group of writers called the Souter Writers after, after Willie Souter, mm-hmm. the famous Perth poet. And we have met for probably about fifteen years or so. Again, we've had various people running the group as writers-in-residence for the city, but when the funding for that disappeared, then the group carried on, and we've been doing things on Zoom, as everyone else seems to have done for the last the last year and a half. Uh, and that's been very supportive. They've done a lot of work to, to sort of workshop the poetry that, that I bring to them, and they are quite tolerant. But they're a tough group. They're not the usual, I like that, that's very nice, Andy, um, bring me some more of those. They are quite... They're quite hard on you. Mm. And the other group I'm a member of is WN Bill Herbert's uh, Dundee Writing Group, which, again, is pretty tough. Mm. Uh, there are a small number of writers, but it's maybe at a more published level in that mm. the people who attend that are, are not looking to be published. They are already well down the line with that. So it's, again, quite a, uh, a well-organised and I would say intellectual group mm. compared to a lot of poetry groups that I know are, are extant elsewhere. Mm. So I am a member of groups, uh, and they are immeasurably helpful to the material that I, uh, I laughingly call poetry that I bring to them on a regular basis. So how do you respond to criticism? I have a very strong imposter syndrome, which I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of poets probably would recognise. I have n- little faith in my own work until somebody publishes it. Then I, get, I guess it's not my not my choice anymore. But up until the point where it appears in print, I am expecting to be found out. So my response to criticism is always. Why didn't I think of that? Immediately I will go and, uh, and make the corrections that you've suggested. Mm. There are times when I, I do hold on to something that I really am quite strongly attached to in, in mm. a poem. But usually if there's a good reason to say I don't think that works, then there's a probably a good reason for me to go and, and have a look at it. So I'm, a, I'm an editor of my own work. Yeah, well, um, that's crucial. Yeah, I think we, we yeah. all have to be editors. And we'll come on to the editing you've done of other people's mm-hmm. work in a moment. But, but So that first collection, The Assassination Museum, tell us about that. Title, title poem. This is drawn from the Kennedy assassination, and I'd seen a sign that in Houston you could go and see the Assassination Museum, where they had the paraphernalia and the bits and pieces that uh, that they could uh, salvage from the 
the CIA's handling of the cleaning up operation after the assassination. So it's just that assassination, not assassination in general. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, It's not not about all assassinations. It's just (laughs) just the one that we all kind of, uh, even those who who weren't born at the time, know where they were. I think Uh, it's on the cover uh, of the book, is it? Is that? I have the copy of the book. It's a tilt shift image, so it's kind of slightly skew. And when I use that the first time. Tilt shift was a very new technique that yes. people tend not to use, but now we, everywhere you go, there's tilt shift photographs. But it is quite yeah. a, a nice one. Yeah. So, what do you feel about that collection now? It's what it's uh, 2010, wasn't it? Yeah, far too soon. I, I went through that Roy of the Rovers thing that you shouldn't really do in poetry. In that, I turned up at a poetry event in the the Trossachs, uh, run by Sally Evans, the poetry weekend that she used to run in Calendar. And I would come up for a couple of years and do bits and pieces. And one year I came up and Red Squirrel Press, who published the collection, were waiting to see another poet about to offer them uh, a book to do because they were keen on their work. And they didn't show up. Uh, And I was the next poet on. Mm -hmm. And after I'd read, Sheila Wakefield from Red Squirrel came across and said, would I be interested in, in doing a book? Now, I'd only had maybe a dozen poems published in my entire writing life up to that Mm -hmm. point. And I was aware that the Roy the Rovers reference being, you know, somebody turns up from the, the big club to see the youthful, hopeful star of the future yeah. who, who gets injured in the first minute and the substitute comes on and scores a hat-trick. And that's how, kind of how I felt. Yeah, yeah. What it meant was I had to either sharpen up or completely write from scratch another 30 poems because I only really had about 15 or 20 that were of any value. Yeah. And I was asked for about... 45 to 50 Mm -hmm. so it meant that within the 12 months between being offered the book and it being published I ended up probably putting a lot of poems in that were not ready and could have done with a lot more editing but it's that age-old question do you say I'm not ready and know yourself and expect that two years later you may still get the offer or Mm -hmm. do you take it while you can in case everything changes and uh, and somebody else gets the gig so so I did and, and now I wish I'd maybe been a bit stronger with myself and said give me another year to get a good collection going. I should think most poets say that about their first collection. I'm, well, I'm, I'm glad sure to hear they that. do. They should try and exclude all their work from their subsequent selections. But I mean, a, a very diverse book. And I'm really struck by poems about Dan Dare, and it struck a chord with me. And uh, what about Woodstock, uh, which I heard you talking about on, a, on another interview you did? Lots about popular culture, mm-hmm. and that seems to emerge more and more in your, in your writing. That was followed five years later by A Beginner's Guide to Cheating. What a wonderful title. Uh, 2015. A different direction, would you say? Though? I'd like to think it was more polished and that the time I had to work on those poems was was maybe better used mm. in that editing process. Uh, and I suppose if you don't like your first collection, then you're probably going to like your second collection slightly better. Mm. Uh, nothing will ever be as good as what you just had published last week. But I, I felt that I had more mature poems, mm. were more ready for the, the reader. It didn't set the heather alight, but then what poetry does well, these days, yeah. it seems. But I was pleased with it, and there are still mm. some poems in there that I read as a greatest hits package if I'm ever asked to read anywhere. So. <laughs> yeah, do you have a, one of your poems that you would call a signature poem? One that you would, you know, like Rohini's Digging or uh, Ted Hughes's Pike or whatever. Do you have a signature poem? I guess so. And the first, the first poem in the first book, which is Off the Wall, which is... Uh, it riffs at the end on on the idea of the hokey cokey being slightly more educated than people would give it credit for. It has some meaning. This mm. fact, it's quite a, a frivolous, uh, you know, social dance in the nineteen fifties or whenever it, it originated. But that poem really works well with an audience, mm. and it's probably one of the few poems in my uh, Mika Kennan that I actually can read 
from heart. I've read it that often, mm. uh, which allows you to act it slightly more because it's, because it's a poem about dances yes. and uh, craze dance crazes. Maybe you you, mm. you can allow yourself a few shapes to throw on the dance floor uh, when reading the poem. Mm. So that's the one that I kind of do get asked for. But bizarrely, the other poem that I might be remembered for in future uh, isn't even in English, uh, and it's in the it's in the book of. Uh, popular culture poems and it's mm. a poem about clangers and it's very short and it, it has been read in clang and those of you who are not old enough to remember the clangers may know nothing about what I speak but the clangers were this animated puppet race who inhabited a small moon in one of the Oliver Postgate Peter Furman mm. small films things of the 1960s watch with mother and uh, but they, no words were uh, involved were they, they, they spoke in whistles spoke, they spoke yeah. in whistles <laughs> I think we're fine with copyright with you quoting that. Yes, well, I I had written the poem as a poem, and then it was my wife that said, why don't you read that like a clanger would read it and see what happens? And I I do make quite a feature of it and uh, and talk about it as if surely everybody knows, Mm. but you remember your clang from school days, you know, and uh, sadly we don't teach it in schools anymore, Mm. and uh, and read the poem and then jokingly say, does anybody need a translation? Do I need to? I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, you know, the the, the dialect. So so that's maybe another one. Um, Goes down well with children who think, what's the funny man doing (laughs) whistling when he's supposed to be reading poetry? So Mm. it may be two very diverse poems that I might be remembered for, or more likely, neither. Mm. But humour is important to you in your poetry, isn't it? You can see. Yes, that. yeah. It's a way in but, for people, I think. Mm. And also um, a mask for some, some pretty dark stuff. So. Yes, I think you can sneak in some big ideas if you have a joke to, to, to mm. preface that. Mm. Now, whilst I'm not suggesting my poems are all jokes, there are some asides that I make that, that people might have a wry smile um, and then go on to, to read the rest. And if, if they do read to the end, mm. where there might be something a bit more serious-minded uh, to, mm. to finish off the work, then maybe that's how some poets function. I think if you only tell jokes in poetry and only try to be funny, then yeah. th- there's a limit to how far you can go with the work. So It's a very sort of English thing. Simon Armitage does that a lot. Yes. Sort of, some yeah. of his poems are sort of almost like jokes in the, the way they end. Yes. Is there a difference between English and Scottish poetry in that respect, do you think? I mean, do, do, does Scottish poetry do the same thing? I'm not, I'm not sure. You are living in Scotland yes. for many years. It, it's difficult to know because Scotland is so dominated by Burns. Right, and yes, yes. people who don't write poetry but write poems will write something that is Burns yeah. in form and in structure and will try and update it for sort of the modern concerns. So it will sound like Burns, but it will read more like something that's uh, maybe Pam Ayres. And that is such a dominant force in Scottish poetry because it's the celebrated bard. I think maybe Scottish poetry suffers a little bit from having to overcompensate to be not like Burns. But Scotland is, uh, maybe this is not fair, but uh, as a Lancastrian, we were always brought up to think that Yorkshire folk were dour. And of course, Scots had a reputation for for dourness. And I think it's unfounded because Scots are just like everybody else. But their poetry is quite serious-minded in, mm. in, in many respects. So outside of Burns and, and McGonagall, the, mm. the elephant in the room for any Dundonian-based poet. Of course, yes. You know, beyond that, we have a lot of very serious voices in Scottish yeah. poetry, particularly contemporary voices. Yeah. Bill Herbert, who is a name you, you will hear me mm. quote often, is the funniest poet I know, yeah. both in person and on the page. And, on the page yes. and he is the anti-Burns, I would say. Owes a lot to Burns for his inspiration, but has taken something very Scottish and made something 
very differently Scottish out of it, yes. and I, I, I can't get enough of Bill Herbert's poetry. Mm-hmm. So I think that's true of Ian Crichton Smith. I've just been editing; he was, it was you know, very serious things, but he, yeah, yeah. as a performer, apparently, and, and he, was, he was absolutely hilarious. And this yes, is, again, there's that yeah. balance of a British thing rather than a, an English thing. I think. So back to that that beginner's guide to cheating, which I, I really enjoyed. Some of the poems very moving. Long Hall, I found a particularly moving poem. What unites that that book? Would you say? I mean, diversity strikes me. But uh, is is there anything that I've got my own ideas. I'd like to hear yours. Yes. I mean, I, I may return to this at some point in other conversations, but people are, are more interesting yes. to me than than things. Things have a value, but only when people place that value on them. So the poems, certainly in that book, uh, that second collection, are much more about people. And the long haul poem you quote mm. is a love poem. And mm. I suppose this happens with a lot of poets. Their partners say, you never write about me. Why don't you write me a love <laughs> yeah. poem? Yeah. So you do, and they say... God, is that what you think of me? And, and you, well, you asked for it. You know? Josh Aper had that trouble too. <laughs> yes, yeah. And this was for my wife. Yeah, um, yeah. So she read the title and didn't read the poem, first of all, and mm. said, is that what you think our marriage <laughs> is? Uh, you know, long haul. And I said, no, it's, a, you know, it's, about, it's about journeying together on a, on a long journey, which for most people would find boring, but actually being together on the most boring long haul journey with no end in sight, if you're with the person you love, it, it flashes by, so mm. so that's what the poem meant, um, yeah. what we forgive of each other and how we put up with each other. Yes. So, so yeah, um, very moving poem, and your poems about people that that really, and quite a few monologues in in, in all your books. So you, you do like to sort of step into somebody's character. Have you written plays, or you thought of considered writing I, plays? I haven't, but I know what you mean. I feel, given my conventionality as a as a person, you know, I have a. I had a job, a career, you know, I have a house that has a mortgage, hmm. I drive a car. I'm not the sort of dissolute poet that um, bombs a, somebody's floor on the left bank in a, in a garret, you know, and uh, has a string of inappropriate relationships with, with frighteningly flaky muses that, that drives them. That's the poetry image that you have. Cool. And I am absolutely not of that kind. So I have to, I have to lie. I have to pretend that I've experienced things. And a lot of the work in all the books that I've uh, had the pleasure of being involved in are usually lies. They're full oh, of or fictions. Uh, or yeah, fictions. Stars, fictions. Yeah. Yes, lies is a bit more um, yeah. dramatic, but yeah, fictions. Mm-hmm. So the monologues you refer to are drawn from a little experience, a bit like Quentin Tarantino. He makes movies mm-hmm. based on movies he's seen. I might write poems on on the same sort of idea, you know, mm-hmm. things that I know that I've not experienced myself. Mm-hmm. So. so how do you set about? writing a poem. I, I mean, Norman McKay famously used to just sort of sit down with a glass of whiskey and the poem would come to him and that was it. And he knew it was going to happen. And I think Ian Crichton Smith is rather similar. Said, is that something you recognise? Or is, is it books? Is it going places? Is it meeting someone? Is it hearing an anecdote? Hearing a word? Or, or the music of a phrase? I don't know, what is it that sparks a poem? Yes. It's difficult to know, but but certainly the sitting down with the whiskey thing and the poem <laughs> will come is not working for me at the moment. No. Uh, I, I think... It is more the small fragments. The word mm. is a good example. I mean, there was... I had given to me a few years ago a book of, of words for which there's no English equivalent. So the, the well-known one that people tend to write a lot about is... And I might get the pronunciation wrong here. Is Hiraeth, the Welsh word for yeah. a sense of place that you've never, you've never actually been to or a mm. longing for a, a past that you've never, you've never uh, inhabited. And it had a couple of really good words in there. And I thought, those are just begging for poems. Mm. So one was Sundoku, which was the 
a Japanese word for people who acquire books with no intention of reading them. Oh, that's a wonderful a library, word. basically. Yes. So that <laughs> that, that my became, tombstone, I think. Yes, I think most of us probably do that. Any poet, uh, when they lead you into their workshop, will probably have many books that they bought, uh, thinking they're going to read this. And mm. uh, so that was one sundoku, and another word was uh, trepanvitz, which is I think the French equivalent is. I'm not sure which the French word is, but it's effectively it's something you wish you'd said after you've had an argument or a conversation. <laughs> the thing you should have said comes to you, but later. And Treppenwitz, German, literally, uh, stare, stairwell wit. So what I thought I should have said after I'd sadly left the office of the person I spoke to. And again, that uh, that is a good word to spark up a poem. Sure, and the poem was really a riff on that idea of what I should have said. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes, I'm struck by you. You do relish unusual words. There's one about swearing. I think one of the patron saints of swearing. When he it was a word about the word to describe when you put all the symbols to to, to express. Oh yes, a grolix. Grolix. Yes, yes that's right. Yeah. Wonderful word. So perhaps that came from the same book. I don't know. I'd not heard that one before. No, I, it did, that was earlier. But I like those words of vernacular, and yeah. I do have a lot of poems yeah. that draw on. Uh, the vernacular of a particular discipline or a field or an yeah. area to try and maybe settle into that yeah. um, and use those words. It's what you want of a poet, really, isn't it? That was Andy Jackson in conversation with John Greening. You can find out more about Andy on his website at www.andyjacksonpoet.co.uk. And that concludes episode 383 which was recorded by John Greening and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 384, we're glad to present the concluding part of this interview, in which Andy speaks with John about poetry design classics, the joy of anthologies and collective daft ideas. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.